you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. As much as I regret to say it, um, if I were honest, I would have to say that the end of our last mission trip was disappointing to me. Not because we didn't accomplish all that we set out to do, we did and more. Not because we ended on a bad note with the missionaries, we, we didn't. We ended on a note of sacrifice and grace from them. No, ultimately it was because the people at Delta, the people at Homeland Security, the people working in the airport failed to do what they had done at every other international trip that I had been on. Whether it's at the separation of international passport holders and U.S. passport holders, or whether it's the completion of your check-in and immigration, someone usually says, welcome home. And nobody did it. Nobody welcomed me home. And I miss that. Because I, I love to hear that. I love coming back from an international trip and having someone acknowledge that as a citizen of the U.S., you are back here. You are back to what is comfortable. You're back to seeing your friends and your family not as digital images or, or communicating via text, but face-to-face hugging and, and kissing and embracing. You get to sleep in your own bed and eat at your favorite restaurants. It is always good to be back home. In some ways, though, for the Christian, that is never the case because we're never in this life fully and finally at home. There's a real sense in which the Bible says that even though we have spent most of our life here, we are most familiar with the situations here, this is not our home because we are, by definition, a pilgrim people. We are meant to be sojourners and exiles simply living in this country, in this world, but never truly feeling at home here. This is an essential part of the larger theme of spiritual warfare that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And as we come to a conclusion this morning, we want to be reminded of what we saw at the very end of Ephesians chapter 6, namely that spiritual warfare is gospel-centered warfare. Specifically, that the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged is not simply a war that is won in our hearts, in our minds, in our churches, but it is meant to be a war of advancement. That the kingdom of Christ is meant to grow and expand, and new citizens are meant to be brought into its realm of salvation. And so if we as God's people only seek to fight against sin and pursue holiness, then we have not done enough. We have not rightly understood our purpose and our calling in the world and in the church. And so as we bring to a conclusion this series on spiritual warfare, we want to be reminded of the mission that God has called us to. And to do that, we want to look to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. But to get the larger context, I want to begin reading at verse 1 this morning. Peter says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think about these verses and the mission that God has called us to and how we are going to complete it, we first want to see this. That our mission requires gospel identity. Our mission requires gospel identity. Who are you? If someone were to ask you that question um, after church or perhaps at work, if someone were to approach you and say, who are you? How would you answer? How, how do you think of yourself? Who do you think you are? Do you identify yourself first as a son or a daughter of someone important? Are you someone else's big brother or big sister, perhaps a younger brother or sister? Are you an American? The Bible's clear the most important part of our identity as Christians is this, that we are God's people. Peter has just described those who would reject Christ. That instead of seeing him as the cornerstone upon which to build their lives and their hopes for salvation, they reject him. And like a builder rejecting a stone, they see it as useless. And in fact, they stumble on him and their lives are crushed by him. In contrast to that, those, in contrast to those who reject Christ, Peter describes those that accept him beginning at verse 9. He tells his Christian readers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Remember, Peter is writing here to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jewish Christians, but to Gentile Christians. And notice what he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You came from all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds, worshiping different gods and pagan idolatry, but now you have been brought together just as the Jews once were and adopted as his people, so it is also with you. In fact, Peter says God has made all of the church, even the Gentiles, to be a new Israel, not made up of a certain ethnic group, but of those who have expressed faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles together as the new one people of God. And Peter says, as he, as he describes this, he, he's piling up these phrases from the Old Testament that once described Israel. He says, now these are true of all who are part of the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just as Israel was chosen out among all the nations of the world to be God's people, so now God has chosen people from every tribe, people, nation, and language. This wasn't because of their righteousness or goodness or something valuable in, him, in them. It was simply because of his sovereign choice, rooted in his mercy and love. I, I, I love in Deuteronomy when, when the Lord tells Israel that I, I loved you because I loved you. 
I mean, what else can you say? There's nothing else to say. God says, you were among the weakest. You were among the smallest of all the nations of the world. And yet I set my affection upon you. Why? Because I chose to do it. I loved you because I loved you. Likewise now for the church, for those that are called by the name of Christ. More than that, Peter says Christians are also a royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, the Lord tells Israel that they were to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Yes, they had their own priesthood that were to offer sacrifices of atonement, that their relationship might be right with God, they might properly worship Him. But as a whole, in some sense, they were also to mediate God's presence to the nations. That is to say, as the nations were to look at Israel and to see their life, to see their faith in God, to see their love for God, they were to see the glory of God. And the desire to come to him as well. Now Christians are given that responsibility. Revealing Christ to the nations. Finally God has purposed that the church is to be a holy nation. They are to be called out from the world in its sinfulness. Dedicated fully to God's purposes. They are to be set apart for God's glory and God's service. So that they are to be a people for his own possession. Not their own possession. It's an amazing description of God's people, and it's only possible because of one thing, God's mercy. That's what Peter says. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you've seen or read The Hunger Games, you will know it revolves around a gruesome Event whereby selected teenagers must survive in mortal combat with against one another. These games were established to keep the various districts from revolting against the national government. So every year two teenagers are harvested by lottery from each district for these games. That's the background of the story, but what really drives the story is an act of self-sacrifice. For the main protagonist named Katniss Everdeen, an older teenage girl has a younger teenage sister, actually preteen. She's only 12, and yet she is old enough to have her name entered into the lottery to participate in the Hunger Games. Yet she is a sweet and innocent girl. Katniss says not to worry because it is her first year. Her name will only be entered once, and yet it is her name that is drawn for the lottery. Because Katniss loves her younger sister she, and knows that there is no chance she will stand. Of, she has no chance of standing to survive in that game. She takes her place. She volunteers to be the representative from her district. On one level, we, we understand that sacrifice, don't we? After all, we, we love our family. As parents, we love our children. Perhaps, as siblings, we love our younger siblings. And we would be willing to do the same thing. But there's something completely unfathomable about the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. I love Paul's meditation on it in Romans 5. He says, we're not innocent 12-year-olds. We're sinners who deserve hell. And yet he says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Back in chapter 1 of this letter, Peter reminds his readers that they were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God has ransomed us from a life of sin and condemnation by counting Christ as the payment of our ransom. It was his death that brought us life and forgiveness. And Peter is clear that this becomes the the, the very centering point of our lives, this reality that we have received mercy. The fact that we have turned to look to Christ in faith, realizing it is not what we do that makes us right with God, it is what he has done. And that God did not need to send Christ. God would have not been unjust if he didn't send a savior and left us to die in our sins. It was an act of his mercy lavished upon us in love. And Peter says this should shape every part of our identity now. Who we think we are, how we live, how we seek to, 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 to interact with others. This message of the gospel of Christ is revealing our true identity and shaping our thinking. And if we are to have any hope of success in spiritual warfare and caring about our mission as God's people, then it has to begin here with gospel identity. If we don't allow this to shape and to form and to become the centering point of who we think we are, then we will never have the right priorities. We will never have the right ambitions. We will never have the right goals and desires. We will never have the right foundation for actually living and serving God the way that he has called us to. Some of you may be here and you may have no gospel identity. You may be here and you may have never acknowledged your sin and your need of a savior and look to Christ as that savior. Today, I would implore you to understand that that all of us are, are born in sin and it is evident by how we live our lives. And the only way that we can be made right with a holy and righteous God is through the sacrifice of his son. Turn to him and look to him in faith, trusting him to make you right with God. Our mission requires gospel identity, but secondly, it also requires gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. God's mercy in saving us is truly amazing. But notice carefully what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the purpose of God's people, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved them, to proclaim God's glory. Just as the gospel was shared with us, we heard it and we believed, so also now we are to share and to proclaim that others might believe. And this purpose is fulfilled in three ways. First of all, there's the context of public worship. We should proclaim to the church. We should proclaim to the church. God's people are called to come together and proclaim God's excellencies to one another. That might be in preaching and teaching. It might be by singing songs that are rich in content that focus our minds and our hearts on God and His saving work. But the question is, why are we commanded to do that? Why are we commanded to declare God's praises? Is it because God is vain? Is He like an older retired woman seeking compliments from her neighbors? Why is God commanding us, not just here, but throughout all of the scriptures, that we declare his glory and his praises. Well, to begin with, the Bible is clear that we become like what we worship. On one level, we don't need the Bible to teach us this. We simply have to remember our childhood. 
Maybe it was a certain character in a book. Maybe it was someone on a television show. But if you liked that individual, what did you do? You imitated them. You wanted to dress like them. You wanted to talk like them. You wanted to walk like them and to be engaged in the same kind of activities as them. If uh, on your recess uh, fr- free time, you would enter into a world of fantasy, uh, acting out uh, a, a life of the person that you admired most. In high school, it becomes a bit more nefarious because then you begin to idolize real people often popular kids, and sometimes it leads you into doing things that you don't particularly like doing, but you want to be accepted. You want to be cool like them. Either way, the point is, the person that you admire, the person on one level that you worship, you become like them on one level. In Psalm 115, the psalmist is lamenting that the nations do not worship the one true God, but bow down to false idols. He says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. He's saying this, that those who worship idols, those who bow down and trust in them, who proclaim their empty glory will ultimately become like those idols. Not that they will become stone, not that they will literally have eyes that stop working or mouths that stop working, no, but they will become as spiritually lifeless and void as those idols. So that they will become dead inside, unable to truly see God for who he is, truly be able to see God's glory or to appreciate the beauty of his saving work. Thankfully, though, this works in the opposite direction as well. If we worship God, we will also become like him. Again, in Romans 8, Paul says this is the eternal plan for God's people, that they are conformed to the image of Christ. How do we do that? By worshiping Christ. By keeping him before our eyes and our minds and our hearts, by seeking to live a life revolved around him. Passages that we saw last week, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are beholding the glory of Christ, and in doing so we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we come together as God's people, declaring His praises with our eyes fixed on our glorious God, we find our faith deepening in Him and our gaze becoming more intense on Him. And this causes us to be changed from the inside out to be like Him, to have our lives reflecting the glory of God our Savior. Moreover, God tells us to proclaim His excellencies in worshiping one another because it is an encouragement to one another. We've said before, it is entirely different for us to be off by ourselves, either in the car or at, or at our home, uh, thinking about God and how marvelous he is. And it's quite another to be in a room gathered of people all doing the exact same thing. Or, or the experience that I've had of going to a pastor's conference, standing with 6,000 other men singing something like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There, there is something particularly encouraging and knowing We're not Elijah. We're not the last prophet out in the hill somewhere. No, God has his other 7,000 set aside for us. In this room, God has his 50. And we are to be an encouragement to one another, an encouragement specifically towards the mission that he has called us to. And so secondly, we proclaim to the nations. We proclaim God's glory to the nations. Ultimately, we must open our mouths and speak for Christ 
to save people. We must announce the gospel message for them to hear and believe. And there is a call that some have to do this proclaiming among the nations of the world. There's a special calling for those to serve in what we call uh, missions or, or uh, global missions. This call is to give up the kind of lifestyle that they have grown up in. It's a call to sacrifice the normal maintaining of friendships and family. It's a call to leave their native country and go to another. It's a call to devote themselves to learning an entirely new language or group of languages, to embrace an entirely new culture. It's a call to die to themselves in a very unique way and to give themselves not just to God's service, but to the service of a people so that they may know the salvation God provides in Christ. It is a glorious calling. It was Paul's calling. Romans 15, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Two things there. First of all, some of you in this room may have a call to take the gospel to the nations. I I pray that someone in this room has the call to take the gospel to the nations. I know of at least one who feels that. How many more might there be? We talk about tithing all that we have to God. Why do we not tithe our membership? Why do we not tithe the people of our congregation to God in that way? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not the one who places a sovereign call on lives. But I pray that if God has placed that call in your life, that you would answer, that you would hear it, that you would respond and obey. But no, secondly, Paul does not expect that everyone has that call. What what does he say there again? He says, I am passing by you as I go on my way to Spain, and I hope to be helped by you on my journey once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul says, I have this unique calling of what we would call frontier or pioneer missions. I'm going where Christ has never been named, and I'm coming by you, Romans. But I don't expect all of you to go with me. Nevertheless, I expect all of you to support me. I expect that you will help me in missions. Those of us that are not called to go, that are called to stay, are not meant to be idle in our staying. We are meant to to support those that are going with our finances, our resources, and our prayers. We're to show them hospitality when they are at home and be mindful of their needs while they are away. But more than that, even in our staying, we should be proclaiming. For in between proclaiming the gospel to the church and the nations, the more common and broad and far sweeping call that all of us have is this that we are to be proclaiming to our neighbors this is the third thing that we see we are to proclaim to our neighbors every christian is one called out of sinful darkness into god's marvelous light that means they are called to proclaim the glory of god regardless of where you live or how you serve if you bear the name of christ then you have a calling to proclaim the name of christ it is a great privilege that we have been given to, to see justly condemned sinners come face to face with a God who's willing to save them from their condemnation. Some of you are scared by that calling to evangelize, to share Christ. Some of you, frankly, are bored by that calling to share Christ. How do we overcome these things? How do we actually seek to engage in this calling that we have? First of all, I would say you need to make sure, sure that you know the gospel clearly. On one level, this shouldn't be a problem because if you have trusted in Christ, you heard a message. 
You heard somebody tell you something about Jesus that caused you to put your faith in him. You should know what that message is. But if you don't, if you need to fine tune it, then get, just get a simple track like Two Ways to Live or download the app for free. Keep it on your phone and, and look at it and review it and remember it. And, and allow that, that simple, clear gospel presentation to not only be fresh in your mind and clear in your mind, but also fresh in your own heart. But secondly, pray. You say, I'm scared to share my faith, or I don't really see the point in sharing my faith. I'm not sure I'm called to do that. Then pray. Pray for God to give you a desire to fulfill the calling that Peter says we all have to proclaim Christ. Pray for God to give you clarity in your thinking as you seek to to proclaim Christ. And then pray for God to give you opportunities to proclaim Christ. I guarantee you, if you pray those three things every day, By the end of this week, someone's going to come up to you and you will have an opportunity to share Jesus. And the question is then, did you really mean the prayers? Were you really sincere in praying, God, give me an opportunity? If you are a willing servant, God will give you something to do. Especially here, where we know it is his will for all of our lives. Peter's told us what we must do as Christians, and now he tells us how we are to do it. Mission requires gospel identity, it requires gospel proclamation, and finally it requires gospel holiness. Mission requires gospel holiness. I've told before the story of Doug Nichols. He is the founder of Action International Missionaries uh, uh, Ministries. Back in 1967, though, he was a missionary in India. And while he was there, he contracted tuberculosis. And so for a while, he was in a tuberculosis sanitarium in India. He was there, in fact, for several months. And while he was there, he kept trying to give away the Gospel of John tracts. But no one would take them. They assumed he was an American, and therefore he was rich, and they didn't like him. At one point in his stay for several nights, he would wake up coughing at 2 o'clock in the morning every morning. And one night, he woke up with this coughing fit, and he looked across the room, and he saw this frail old man trying to get out of bed. The man couldn't stand up. He was so weak and he couldn't get out of bed and he began to whimper as he fell back down into the bed. What Nichols didn't know at the time was that he was trying to get to the restroom that night and he couldn't make it. In the morning, the stench in the ward was terrible and everyone was angry at the old man for not containing himself. The nurse who came to clean the man up and to clean his bed up smacked the man across the face telling him he shouldn't make such a mess. The next night, the very same thing happened. Nichols woke up coughing with his own terrible sickness and weakness, and again he saw the old man desperately trying to get out of bed and failing. The old man began to cry softly. This time, though, Nicholas got out of his own bed, and he went over to the old man, and he picked him up. And at first the old man was cowering with fear because he thought Nichols was going to, to smack him around as well. But he picked him up, and he carried him over to what was essentially a hole in the, in, the, in the ground, in the corner of the room that was used as the bathroom. When the man was done, Nichols carried him back and the frail old man kissed him on the forehead as he laid him back down in bed. Two hours later, at four o'clock in the morning, another patient woke Nichols up, offering him a steaming hot cup of tea, motioning towards the booklets that contained the Gospel of John. So Nichols gave him a booklet, and throughout the day, the next morning, people kept coming and asking for the Gospel of John, and asking for the Gospel of John. What does Peter say? 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Nichols, if he would have been anybody else, if he would have been the rich American, he would have been angry at the old man just like everybody else. If his identity would have been found in this world only, then he would have been consumed with feelings of of grief and sympathy for his own illness and his own weakness, his desire to be out of that place, his frustration that nobody wanted to take the gospel of John, that his, his being angry at God that he would have even been there. But Nichols was not a citizen of this world. He was a sojourner. He was an exile. He was one who had his identity formed by the gospel. And so he waged war on the sinful desires of his flesh to simply be lazy, to simply check out, to simply wallow in self-pity. And instead he got up and he imitated his Savior who not only saved sinners, but even deigned to wash their feet the night before they would betray him. Nichols embraced the command to keep his conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And what happened? Though they thought he was an evildoer, they saw his good deeds and they glorified God. The reality is our good deeds in this life, our our desire for a holiness that is driven by, by, by confidence in Christ, the gospel message, it has a way of showing itself through our actions that though people may despise us for being a Christian, and they will, and they will, though they may despise us for being a Christian, they are nevertheless willing to listen to what we have to say because they will see our good deeds and they will glorify God. In the midst of this great spiritual war that we have been considering over the past several weeks, we have seen primarily this call, a call to stand firm. And that simply doesn't mean hold the line. No, we are called to charge. We are called to advance on the enemy, driving him back, freeing men and women and children from sin by the power of the gospel. And we will be able to do this when we remember that we are God's people. We have received mercy and we have been freed from the power of sin, death, and the devil. We will be able to do this when we open our mouths to proclaim God's glory, when we share about the saving work of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, when we do this to one another and to our city and to the ends of the earth. We will be able to do this effectively when we seek God's holiness for ourselves. We will take up God's armor. We will take up his sword. We will call out to him in prayer, receiving the grace and the power that we need to trample over the spiritual forces of darkness, bringing the light of the gospel to people everywhere for the glory of the Son's name. May this be the desire of our heart as we finish this study and as we stand surveying Hopefully, a fresh perspective on our life as God's people. And not only the eternal stakes that are there, but the temptations daily to forget about those things. To to too deeply plant our roots into this world and live as citizens of earthly kingdoms rather rather than citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Father, we are so thankful for your word, which does constantly redirect our thinking. God, it renews our love for you, it refreshes our souls, and helps guide us in the way that we should go. Father, I pray this morning that we would not neglect to hear the message that you would speak to us from your word. 
I pray, God, that in the midst of any conviction we might feel for our failures, that, God, we would take encouragement knowing that you are our Father and that you call us to faithfulness. And though you may discipline us, it is for our good. That, Father, you are a Father that has saved us and adopted us into your family. Therefore, Lord, you always encourage us to return to you, to seek your face, that you will not only forgive us our sins, God, but you will give us the grace that we need to live as you've called us to. Father, I pray especially for this passage that we have looked at. God, it is such a commonplace message. It is a message that most of us have heard all of our life if we've grown up a Christian, and yet so many of us still struggle with. Father, I pray that you would use your word to renew our thinking to renew our affections, to redirect us, God, to truly see that we have been placed in this world not for our own good, not for our own ambitions, not for our own satisfaction and desires and pleasures and comforts. God, we have been placed in this world. We have been shown mercy and have been saved by you that we might proclaim the name of Christ. God, may that redefine our thinking about who we are and how we should live, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's raising our children, whether it's checking out at a department store, or whether it's accepting a call to take the gospel to the nations. God, may the mercy that we have received, our identity in Christ, reshape everything and define our very existence in this world. God, we ask all this for the fame of Christ's name. Amen.